That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes John Einerson to discuss 60 Sunset Strip star Arthur Lee in Love. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by John Einerson, author of Forever Changes, Arthur Lee, and the Book of Love. John, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, I love this book. This, uh, I'm, The 60s rock stuff is really my home base, and Arthur Lee is one of my all-time heroes. I think I got Forever Changes when I was about 15 or 16 in the late 80s, and uh, just been a, a big part of my life. So first, I want to thank you for doing this book, which I think oh. is... My pleasure. Uh, the the definitive uh, account of Arthur Lee's life. But tell us about the book. You've got quotations throughout the book from an unpublished memoir by Arthur Lee. How did that come about? Well, when I first decided to do the book, it, uh, it was important to me to connect with Arthur's widow, Diane Lee, because if I had her cooperation, that would open doors to other people being interviewed because you know I had, I had her stamp of approval. So I, I first contacted her, and she was agreeable to the whole idea of it. She felt that uh, it was time for a decent book on Arthur and not just all the usual myths and rumors and stories that uh, that have spread for such a long time. And uh, so she then told me about Arthur's memoir. And it wasn't a full life memoir. It wasn't a full autobiography. It was at various sections of his uh, career and life. And she said I could access that. And she sent it to me and I had it transcribed, you know, someone type it up. So I had it digitally. And uh, it was important to me to have Arthur's voice in the book because anytime anyone had written about Arthur in the past, it was always quotes from interviews he had done here, there and everywhere. But to have him talking directly about these subjects in something that was unpublished uh, was a real bonus. It was not a publishable, it was not a publishable book, Arthur's, uh, Arthur's memoir, not in the least. But uh, it afforded me the opportunity to be able to take from it passages, you know, polish them up a little bit, but still keep the context of them and include Arthur. And 
and I think that that's a strength of the book that sets us apart from anything else that has been written about Arthur Lee and uh, love is uh, Arthur's voice throughout. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you would expect, it's a very distinctive voice and he ha- had his own perspective and his own take on things. And that's totally um, priceless and invaluable. But let's try to understand Arthur. And he was a unique individual with a unique and individual background. He came originally from Memphis, but he was raised in L.A. And Johnny Eccles, his, his guitar player in love, had a similar biography. Can you tell us about that and how they knew each other in Memphis and then reconnected in L.A.? And what was unique about Arthur's upbringing and background? Well, it you know the whole idea that uh, that Johnny and Arthur lived you know one street apart in uh, in this particular district of Memphis, and then they should meet in uh, L.A. and form you know a life a lifelong uh, partnership and and form you know a number of bands together. It's pretty amazing for that to, that to happen. And Arthur, uh, hmm, here's the thing about Arthur he he was an only child. His parents were older. His mother was 42 when she gave birth to him. He was an only child. His uh, stepfather was uh, also older and a a very talented stonemason. And um, they doted on Arthur. I mean, I remember Johnny Eccles telling me Arthur was the only guy in our district in L.A. that had a TV in his bedroom. So when he was sent to his room for being bad, I mean, he could sit and watch TV all day. So Arthur was very, mm, I guess you say self-absorbed is, is what you want to say. And that, uh, that I think that informed much of his life. The world revolved around Arthur and it was his way or the highway. And he developed, uh, because he was an only child, he developed a very, very vivid imagination as well. And all of this influenced and informed the music that we, he would come to write. But coming from Memphis, his birth father being a musician. I think he played cornet in the Jimmy Lunsford band, which was a well-known African-American jazz band at the time. It's like he had music in his genes. Now, uh, Arthur's first father, or you know, his birth father, uh, and uh, his mother divorced, and that's when she moved out to uh, L.A. and met C.L. Lee, who became his uh, stepfather. But um, everything... Everything is about Arthur. I don't mean that in, a, in necessarily a bad way, but he certainly grew up uh, very much indulged and very much, uh, you know, spoiled, if you will. I think that's even the word that Johnny Eccles uses to describe young Arthur. But uh, he brought some of that Memphis R&B music with him. In, in him from, from – he used to spend time with one of his aunts in Memphis, and she would turn him on to uh, blues and rhythm and blues, and he began to absorb that along with gospel music. She played a lot of gospel music as well. So when he came to L.A., he brought some of that with him and then became part of the, the Los Angeles music milieu uh, going on in the uh, early 1960s. Yeah, it's interesting to read about uh, Arthur and Johnny and their early bands. Arthur was originally a keyboard player. and Accordi- He was an accordion player. Yeah, even crazier. And, and then uh, with their early bands, he would play uh, organ a lot. And their first band was called The Lags in honor of Booker T and the MGs, the Memphis group, MG. This was the L.A. group. So definitely starting out in an R&B bag, but they – the love we know is this folk rock group massively influenced by the birds and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and their vocal styles. You know, Arthur and Johnny would both talk about Johnny Mathis as a big vocal influence. 
how did they make that switch? Was it a self-conscious thing or, you know, and, and, and you got to tell us the story about the Beatle wigs. <laughs> well, you, you move with the times musically and, you know, R&B, Booker T and the MGs, that kind of stuff was happening at the time, you know, as was kind of surfing music, you know, pre-Beatles in, in uh, LA and Arthur, you know, delved into those two genres and styles of music. But the influence of the Beatles thing really happened in a, in a big, big way. Uh, and Arthur caught on to that and he saw something in the music that connected to him and, um, you know, putting, putting Beatle wigs on and playing gigs. I mean, I, lots of musicians did that. I, I wrote a biography of Neil Young in his, his early years in Canada. And there are stories of him playing with a Beatle wig at community club dances in early 1964. Everybody wanted to catch on to that. And there's a person that kind of orbits around um, the, the little universe of uh, Arthur and uh, Johnny Eccles, and that's uh, Billy Preston. And he was a friend of Arthur and Johnny's from the same community in uh, L.A., same African-American community. And it's Billy who had met the Beatles in um, in Liverpool back in 63, who uh, got free tickets for Arthur and Johnny to go see the Beatles in uh, in L.A., Dodger Stadium, I guess. And, it was uh, the Hollywood Bowl. Hollywood Bowl. Okay, there you go. And, um, you know, just Arthur caught the excitement of it. And he saw in the music... He saw the influences. I mean, you know, John Lennon brought the, the the girl groups, the Shirelles and the Crystals and the Cookies and all that. He brought that vocal style to uh, the Beatles. And, of course, Paul McCartney loved Little Richard and, um, you know, Carl Perkins with George Harrison's thing with Rockabilly. So Arthur, being a student, enough to recognize that there were American roots to this British music. And so he, he understood it and he could emulate it. But they weren't from L.A., so when the uh, when the birds emerged, you know, in in uh, early 1965 on the Sunset Strip, they were L.A. They, they were an L.A. band, even though none of them actually came from L.A., but they were certainly a Southern California band. And, and so they became not only L.A.'s and Hollywood's and California's Beatles, they became North America's Beatles. And they had a huge impact on the Sunset Strip and bands all throughout Los Angeles and Southern California. And Arthur caught on to that and connected with it as well. Now, he wasn't a folky. I, like the, the guy, Some of the guys in the birds came from folk groups prior to putting the birds together. They brought that with them. Arthur didn't. Arthur had uh, that, that R&B and that rock style, but he recognized uh, the uniqueness of the jingle jangle guitar and certainly poetic lyrics rather than she loves you yeah yeah or I saw her standing there kinds kinds of uh, of lyrics so that became the the next phase of his music career was uh, getting deep into folk rock and it's then that he puts together the grassroots who you know would then become love and the first love album of course would would have a lot of folk rock sounds within it but the thing about that album too was arthur's voice i mean arthur didn't sing like a folk guy he didn't you know he didn't have these appalachian mountain harmonies like the birds he still had this kind of um I want to say soulful, but a little bit of an edge to to his singing style. And you hear that on that first album. It's almost like punk folk rock. You know, it's got jingle jangle Rickenbacker guitars, but then this guy really with this sneering kind of a voice singing over it. Well, let's hear a little bit of it. I, I picked My Flash on You from Love's first album. I don't want 
That was My Flash on You, written by Arthur Lee, off of Love's first uh, album. And yeah, you can definitely hear that value proposition of the Rolling Stones meets the birds right yeah. there. And, exactly. and and once I got, you know, once I read them talking about Johnny Mathis and his influence on their vocals, like I definitely picked that up too. And you've got a great quote in the book from Arthur where he's talking about trying to sing white when he first got on this Beatles obsession. He said, after trying to do that for a while and listening to the voice I was using and my natural voice combined, I came out with a brand new voice of my own. What started out as a put on materialized as something real and positive. And it's just a classic example of an artist synthesizing different influences to create something wholly original. Yeah. Here's the thing too about Arthur. Um, we have to kind of couch this in, 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 an, in an acceptable kind of a way. He never sounded, he never sounded black. Okay, he never sounded like an R and B singer. I mean, listen to Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger's trying to sound like he grew up in the South Side of Chicago. Arthur Lee's voice never sounded like that. And it was fascinating to discover that, you know, in the early years of love, when people would hear the records, they thought it was a white guy singing. And 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 then when you see Arthur, I mean, Arthur's Arthur's grandmother was uh, black and his grandfather was white. And so uh, his mother looked very white. And as a matter of fact, she passed as white throughout her life. She was even turned away at, at a, an all-black hospital in Memphis because they said she was white. So um, Arthur didn't look black. He didn't sound black. And he developed this vocal style, as, as, as you say from, from the quote, that became distinctive of Arthur. And and distinctive from any other singers happening at that time. And yeah, influences maybe of Johnny Mathis in there. Interesting thing is that, that Johnny Eccles looked like Johnny Mathis as well. He sure did. So, so more than just the influence in, in Arthur's singing, you had that there as well. Interesting side to this, and I probably should have said it earlier, is the song My Diary, which uh, Arthur wrote about his then, you know, 15 or 16-year-old girlfriend. And, you know, it was recorded by Rosa Lee Brooks, who was a wannabe kind of a R&B singer in L.A. And this is when Arthur was trying everything and anything to try to get, uh, you know, get get uh, some attention in the music scene and makes the right connections and get get a record out. Uh, it's not that important a song in any way, but but for one thing, and that's Jimi Hendrix, of course, played on that. And it's it's not like you can hear <laughs> Purple Haze in his playing or anything like that. But it's the connection that Arthur made with with Jimi Hendrix early on, and it was important to Ar it was important for Arthur to to be able to say. I hired Jimi Hendrix. You know, he was no—he was a nobody. You know, scuffling around with a, you know a borrowed guitar, and he had you know a hoodie on when he came to the session. But I booked Jimi Hendrix, and later on, as Jimi Hendrix became you know a megastar, you know, in, up in the rock and roll stratosphere, and Arthur didn't. Uh, Arthur resented Jimi, and, and and Arthur who called himself the electric black man, the first electric black man, the first psychedelic black man, I guess is what you really should say. Um, he resented the fact that Jimi Hendrix got that uh, title added to him when Arthur was already very flamboyant when Jimi was looking for gigs. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And we'll get to some of the reasons that Arthur didn't become that kind of megastar, and some of those were self-inflicted. And you've talked about race a little bit, but you know, this being America... 
we just can't get away from it. it. It twists and distorts everybody's psyche in this country. And Arthur was no exception. I mean, even though L.A. was certainly much less, you know, it wasn't segregated compared to Memphis. There was definitely some racism. We all know about the LAPD, but mm-hmm. still it was a night and day difference from 1960s Memphis to 1960s Los Angeles and the part of L.A. Arthur was in was quite integrated. But when he put together the original lineup of the band that became love which he called the grassroots it was very self-consciously integrated and he knew what he was doing he knew that that was going to have a socio-political impact and yeah it's fascinating his rivalry and friendship with Jimi hendrix they're kind of frenemies in a way and it's sort (laughs) sort of parallel to his relationship with jim morrison who also goes from being kind of a protege of arthur's to ultimately surpassing him in the rock star stakes. Well, let's talk about this grassroots thing a little bit. They're playing in LA. Um, they put together the band. It, it's it's Arthur and Johnny Eccles. Arthur's given up keyboards and is doing some guitar playing, but not that much on stage. They uh, find a drummer named Don Conca, who's a hotshot uh, jazz-influenced drummer. There's originally a guy they called Bobby Bummer, who was uh, the rhythm guitar player who goes on to quite a bummer of a career as Bobby Beausoleil of first season, Kenneth Anger's uh, one of uh, Kenneth Anger's um, I think it's Lucifer rising. And then he's unfortunately got a starring role in the Manson family and committed, you know, death penalty murder of Gary Hinman. Um, but he's replaced by a guy called Brian McLean. Talk about that formative period of the grassroots and love and how they uh, lost their name and how come Don Conca and Bobby Bosley didn't end up in the final lineup. Well, Bummer Bob, Bummer Bobby was Bobby Bosley. And Arthur doesn't have much to say about him. Um, neither did Johnny Eccles. He was kind of in and out of the band a little bit at that time when they were playing the Brave New World and then moved over to Beat Alitos. You know, and, and in, in the door, story, Beat Alito's, um, you know, certainly looms large, but the, you know, Love, or the grassroots who then became Love, uh, played there and and put that place on the map before uh, the doors moved in and followed Love. It's interesting that uh, there's a quote I have in the book from uh, Ray Manzarek about Jim Morrison saying, if we could only be as big as Love, that's all I want, <laughs> you know, to be as big <laughs> as Love was. And, you know, he, and uh, Arthur, of course, Arthur being Arthur, um, when well, when the Doors became successful, and of course Jim Morrison's individual star rose, then Arthur resented him for that. And you know, Arthur needed to remind people frequently that he's the guy that recommended that Jack Holzman at Elektra Records sign the Doors because he had seen the Doors opening for other acts at uh, at the Whiskey. And, 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 you know, Beat Alitos and, and uh, other clubs along Sunset Strip. And he's, he saw something in them that Jack Holtzman didn't see until his third visit. Arthur kept pestering him, saying, you got to sign these guys. you got to sign these guys. They're really going to be something. And so um, Jack did. And the problem, of course, with, with, with Arthur was, unlike the Doors, who were willing to do anything – Whatever was needed. If you got to go on the road, you go on the road. If you got to do silly TV shows, you do silly TV shows and mime to your records. You know, you do you do the the teen magazine interviews and the eight by tens, all all of this stuff. You play the star maker machine, and in in for the doors, it it proved successful. 
And then Arthur resented that because he thought he was the fair-haired boy at Elektra Records. And it just seemed that uh, Jack Holzman was putting all his resources and all his strengths and effort behind the doors. But the problem was Arthur. Arthur wouldn't tour. He did not like to tour. He wanted to be home. It's funny, but this is true. He wanted to be home in his bed every night. So he didn't want to be in a hotel room bed or somewhere else. He wanted to be in his his bed every night. So they did one kind of half-hearted tour. But it, again, Arthur was very uncomfortable with it, not happy about it. They played a few out-of-town gigs, you know, one-offs here and there. But it wasn't what Arthur wanted to do. He He wanted success on his own terms. And you can't do that. I mean, you, the, the, the music business requires certain things of its uh, artists to be successful, and you've got to play the game. And Arthur wouldn't play the game. So as Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix and, and, and other contemporary stars rose, Arthur's didn't. And his world began to shrink uh, around him. Now I have to think about what that question was. You asked me as I went off another direction. <laughs> well, let me, let me... Oh, the grassroots to to love. Okay, I I got it now. Yeah, here's <laughs> the thing about the, the, Arthur came up with the name the grassroots. That was a cool name. Brian McLean joined the band, and that was a big big change for the band. Not just a name change, but with Brian coming in. Brian had been a roadie for the Birds. He was just a kid. He was in his late teens at the time, but he was good looking. He was born into the whole Hollywood you know, milieu, uh, father in the film business, all of this sort of thing. I mean, he dated Liza Minnelli when he was a kid. That you know, So he had that kind of um, image, I guess, about him. You know, kind of that Hollywood uh, cred, I guess, about him. But he had hung out with the, with, uh, the birds, and he brought the folk rock sound to Arthur, even though, as you know, as we've talked about, the birds influenced Arthur, and he saw them, you know, at, at Ciro's and, and other clubs in the Sunset Strip. He was a guy who knew them personally, who came into the band and brought songs like, like Hey Joe that the birds had yet to record, but was in their, uh, the live shows since, you know, since 65. But what it also meant was it brought another songwriter into the band, and it wasn't just all about Arthur. Now, Arthur certainly kept Brian down, and you had maybe one or two songs by Brian on, on each album, but not much more than that because it was Arthur's show, it was Arthur's band, and it was Arthur's way or nothing. But Brian McLean brought a really different tenor to the band's sound, almost a softer sound and, and a folkier and a folk rockier sound. As love kind of progressed, Brian kind of stuck with those with that sound and that style that really kind of countered to, to Arthur's sound and, and brought a broader appeal to love and certainly brought a teen appeal to love because Brian was a good looking, it looked like Brian Jones with the haircut and all that and was part and parcel of that whole Sunset Strip Hollywood scene. And let's uh, what, let me jump in on you and, and let's introduce our second song. And this I, I avoided playing my little red book, which was Love's first single, the Burt Backrack Hal David song they covered, and was a, a significant local hit and a minor national hit for the band. But for the second one, I've got to go with Seven and Seven Is. This was a Love's second single, the biggest uh, single they ever had on the charts, and just an epic, epic song. It's it's explosive, <laughs> quite literally. Definitely. <laughs> Room, I said my mind. 
And that was Seven and Seven Is from Love's DiCapo album, which was also the biggest hit single they, they ever had. And yeah, you call it a small-scale cultural phenomenon and a musical milestone, a loud, aggressive, no-holds-barred, garage-style punk song a decade before that musical term was current. It also has throwbacks to Buddy Holly's style. It reminds me a lot of what the Bobby Full, Fuller 4 was doing at that same time, which, you know, the Beatles famously didn't like that Buddy Holly galloping snare drum sound and, and had kind of expunged it from the British scene. But uh, Arthur and and uh, um, the Bobby Fuller kind of bring it back in L.A. So, yeah, just just epic stuff. And um, I got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to kind of cut that short. But, yeah, for a while there were the grassroots. But then uh, this guy, Lou Adler, who's, yeah. you know, plays a big role in the Mamas and the Papas story and everything, swiped the name and put it on a band of uh, session recordings that were work, or session musicians that were working with P.F. Sloan, the songwriter behind Eve of Destruction and, and others. And, uh, you know, record a hit single on this group, The Grassroots, recruit a group from San Francisco to become The Grassroots and steal Arthur's name out from under him. So Arthur and the guys become love. And one thing when before we talk about uh, their second and third album, one thing that I didn't understand really until I read the, this book was these guys were a local phenomenon, but they were big. They were the kings of the L.A. Strip. They would play multi-night engagements at the Whiskey A Go-Go, playing up to 2,000-seat uh, venues by the by the end of their run in L.A. Arthur's driving a Porsche. They're living in a big house called The Castle. Tell us a little bit about that lifestyle. They're dating Playboy bunnies. Like, how are they having this kind of success just on a local popularity? Well, they were a cool band. I mean, as, as we mentioned before, they were an uh, interracial band, an integrated band. And uh, Arthur was dynamic on stage. And uh, Johnny Eccles was a great guitar player. He doesn't really get enough credit for his uh, great guitar playing. And uh, when the birds kind of moved on from uh, Ciro's and uh, the trip and the, the clubs of uh, the Sunset Strip, the, bir the, the birds moved on to tour nationally and they became you know international stars. They didn't have to play the clubs. They were playing stadiums and, and, and concert halls. Love was well positioned to be able to step right in and to you know assume the mantle as the kings of the Sunset Strip and Arthur being the prince of Sunset Strip uh, before the doors. You know, I mean, when Arthur began not to play much anymore, the doors were well positioned to move in and become the stars of the Sunset Strip. But uh, they had a lot of appeal. They had a lot of teen appeal, and um, they were they were playing everywhere. So they were they were visible. You could go see Love where nobody else in North America could go see Love. And they were. I mean, Arthur. Yes, I called him the prince of the Sunset Strip, and they lived like royalty. We have this image of the castle, you know, and they wrote a song about it, and it, it's this mansion in Los Feliz in, in in Los Angeles, and a huge place. But in fact. When when Arthur talks about it, and I also think Johnny talks about it in, in the book, it was a dump. I mean, the toilets didn't work and they overflowed. There was, you know, hardly any furniture at all in the place. Mattresses thrown into uh, bedrooms to sleep on. But that didn't matter. It had this cachet as cool, and it again, uh, you know, amplified. This this image of the band as being a real cool band, and after gigs, let's you know let's bring the party up to the castle and you know smoke some dope and whatever, and uh, just just live this rock and roll lifestyle. So all of this stuff fed into the the uh, the imagery and ultimately the myth 
of Arthur Lee and love. And one of the things that, I, that I've done in many of my books, and, and it is kind of intentional, is to really do some myth busting, is to present the reality. And there's so many myths surrounding love and so many myths surrounding Arthur Lee that uh, I wanted to present, you know, the real story of it. And, and you know, the castle wasn't a castle when you stepped into it, but it certainly looked like a castle and with walls around it too. I, and I've been to it. Um, it, it. It's imposing looking, it's impressive looking, uh, and it, it, it fit and it befit you know, Arthur's image and, and the band of, of love. You know, you, you mentioned about Lou Adler and Arthur had a hate on for Lou Adler after he did put together this grassroots. And according to Arthur, um, Lou Adler came and saw the grassroots, Arthur's band playing at the Brave New World. And when he put the studio band together to record, you know, Where Were You When I Needed You, the P.F. Sloan song, um, stole the name. So... You know, fast forward a year or two later, and Lou Adler is one of the organizers of the Monterey Pop Festival. And Love should have played that festival. They were they were big enough to be included on the roster of artists there, considering, you know, their stature uh, on the Sunset Strip. But when asked, Arthur refused to play for two reasons. Number one, he would not have anything to do with Lou Adler because of this whole name thing. And number two, Arthur wouldn't play for free. <laughs> Everybody played for free. <laughs> Arthur, no, no way is Arthur going to play for free. You want him, you pay for him. So, you know, that that's kind of sad. You know, 7 and 7 is, I think, is, is an incredible song. And I'm old enough to remember first hearing it on, on my transistor radio as, as a teenager when it was released, uh, you know, in, in, I guess, late summer for us in Canada of 1966 there was nothing like it i mean it's it's a steady drum roll the whole you know, two and a half minutes or however long the song is it's a steady drum roll until the gunshot explosion that goes off and uh, interesting to i interviewed snoopy and uh, also had arthur's memoir and they traded off i mean arthur arthur could play drums and uh, arthur would do a take and then snoopy would do a take and they had, you know, multiple takes and they had to pick the best one. And in the end, it's Snoopy who, according to Snoopy, it's Snoopy who ended up playing on, on the final take. But it was uh, – Jack Holtzman had produced the first Love album. And it, it was difficult to work with Arthur at times, a very headstrong guy. He knew what he wanted. Uh, wasn't going to take direction from someone who didn't know what he wanted. But after 7 and 7 is, Jack Holtzman said, that's it. I can't, I'm not working with these guys anymore. I can't produce them at all. So Bruce Botnick, who was the engineer on the, on the first couple of albums, uh, eventually stepped up. But uh, Paul Rothschild stepped in to finish the tracks for what became DeCapo. Yeah, and, and you talked about Snoopy and that Snoopy Fister. And um, he came in as a replacement for Don Conca. And and actually, it's time to take our sponsor break. Let's take our quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the various lineup permutations of love as a recording act. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar... 
you're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. And so we were talking about the lineup of love, and I'd mentioned Don Conca, who's a virtuoso original drummer. But yeah, he... he's who's remembered for that song signed DC. Yeah, which is a powerful anti-drug message because of the struggles Don Conca was having. They bring in Snoopy, who's the roommate of Ken Forsey, the bass player on all the, the first three Love albums. Ken Forsey's a virtuoso bass player. Maybe not virtuoso, but a very good rock bass player. And Snoopy was not the strongest musician and wasn't especially liked by anybody in the band, including Ken Forsey. Um, <laughs> but Arthur did take him under his wing. And even when they bring in uh, Michael Stewart to play drums on the second album, and they make this big shift to become this jazz rock band, one of the first bands to do this in a significant way. They bring in to Jay Contrelli on sax and flute. And they move Snoopy over to keyboards. He's not the greatest keyboard player, but he can play harpsichord well enough that that album kind of fits right in with like the Left Bank and Simon and Garfunkel and this various sort of um, Baroque rock thing that was going on in 66. Um, tell us a little bit about like Love's permutations from the first, second, and then onto the third album. Well, uh, Johnny Fleckenstein had been in uh, the band on bass before Ken Forsey joined, and he was going to play in the Standells, and then he'd get involved in the movie business and actually did very well. I, I think I talked to him for the book as well. Yeah, the Don Conca story is really kind of sad. Um, you know, he, he battled the heroin addiction throughout you know, much of his adult life, and it was debilitating enough that he had to be replaced in the band. But he's forever, you know, he's been memorialized and he's become immortal from that song, Signed DC. And and it is, um, it's a sad song. It's a heartbreaking song about, you know, what it's like living your life for the, the, the next shot. And uh, Arthur even did that on the American Bandstand. On American Bandstand, they did Sign DC uh, with Love. But yeah, yeah, you're right about Snoopy. Snoopy wasn't the greatest musician, and nobody liked him. But Arthur felt sorry for him, which you know, which is again kind of bizarre. So when when the chance to get Michael Stewart coming out of the Sons of Adam, who were another well-respected band on the Sunset Strip, uh, when they they convinced and they've been they've been trying for months and months to get uh, Michael Stewart to join the band, or Michael Stewart Ware as as he is know now um he finally agreed to join so what do you do with snoopy you don't need him anymore he could play a little bit of keyboard okay let's put him on a harpsichord but uh the harpsichord sort of a, it comes and goes throughout the decapo album and on side two the the, the long jam side of, of decapo Sm snoopy does this classical interlude thing that he said he had you know, learned from listening to classical music and he kind of plays it at the beginning of the jam and then plays it at the end of the jam but you know for the for the 16 or 17 minutes in the jam he's not even in it at all doing doing anything but it, it's it's a strange situation of of arthur who i was very focused and and focused on the money why have another guy in the band because we're, why, what are we paying them for but he did he did have uh sympathy for snoopy in bringing him in but bringing it to jake and trally was a very very interesting move because arthur always liked to shake things up. 
and and to be innovative. His version of of uh, folk rock was very punk and R and B ish in in his certainly in his vocal delivery and and the way he approached a lot of the songs that he wrote in that style. But then for DeCapo, you know, recorded in uh, in the summer of 1966 and released uh, in the fall. To bring in that jazz element, I mean, the term jazz rock would would come about, you know, 1969, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, spinning wheel, and all that, you know. Then Chicago and Chase, and, and the whole jazz rock thing would explode with, you know, nine piece bands. But Arthur was doing it with a rock format and a rock context, adding saxophone and flute. And Johnny was well positioned to be able to to move into jazz rock because he could play that sound and that style as well. So when when you listen to side one of De Capo, it's great. I mean, it's, it's it's music you hadn't really heard before in a rock band context. And Arthur was writing with the flute and different time signatures in mind. And then you turn it over and you get Revelation, which I always felt, and I still do, was a waste of a whole second side of an album. Arthur was prolific enough that he had songs they could have put on there, and Brian probably had more songs as well. But to put the jam on there seemed to me to be a waste. And and, and Arthur explained it as this is what people liked us doing on stage. We would do you know we would do a, a, a blues jam called John Lee Hooker, just you know, the guy's name as the title. And that became sort of the basis for for uh, revelation. And uh, then I also read Arthur saying, well, you know, Jack Holzman wasn't going to pay us very much uh, for our song. So I, what the hell, I'm not going to give him any more songs. We'll just do a jam. And that also fits Arthur as well, because, <laughs> you know, it's if you're not going to pay me for my songs or pay me what I think they're worth, screw you. Here's a jam. And, you know, it's interesting to discover, too, when I interviewed Bruce Botnick, that, uh, in fact, they, they did the jam several times and it was up to Bruce and Paul Rothschild to take bits and pieces of two of the jams and put them together. I mean, it's seamless. You would never think that it's two, two uh, separate jams, but it works very well. Innovative for its time, for sure. Nobody was really doing that. I mean, the Rolling Stones had done something like that, uh, I think on Aftermath or Between the Buttons. But for, uh, for, for a band of Love's caliber, and for a songwriter of of Arthur Lee's character to just have a jam on there, uh, it's um, interesting, daring, I guess. But for me, the capo has always been side one. And, you know, Brian found comfort uh, in that style because he could also perform within that kind of a pop jazz sound and style, too. It's a shame that they only did the jazzy thing on side one of the, of DeCapo, and by the time of the third album, Forever Changes, they'd moved on from that and left it behind. And Contrelli was gone from the band; he was only in it for a few months. But you know, I think it's it's music's loss that we never got to hear more of that uh, that lineup, with or without Snoopy noodling on the harpsichord. Yeah, that that whole jazz rock thing has fascinated me um, through this podcast. And like, I didn't realize that Revelation had been edited together by tape, which was the same method they used on Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Mm-hmm. And and you know, also, you know, as long as I've come up as a young punk rocker and stuff, everybody didn't like side two of DeCapo and, and wrote it off. But my daughter in the car today fell in love with it, and. Fans at the time loved that stuff. Like they pulled Cream, the blues rock band, away from the psychedelic pop they were recording. I mean, that stuff was seen 
as why are they wasting their time on this when they could be doing these 19 minute blues jams? So there was this hunger as, as the whole career of the Grateful Dead attests, people wanted these long jams and wanted, uh, uh, you know, things to go on, but let's go ahead and hear a song from love's third album. Uh, this is alone again, or by Brian McLean that opens love's forever changes album. McLean's opener to Love's classic Forever Changes album. And again, they have a big difficulty transitioning to this album and studio studio musicians, members of the famous Wrecking Crew, which they weren't called the Wrecking Crew at the time. That's a posthumous moniker. But they're very famous now. Uh, Carol Kay and Hal Blaine. That whole crew had to come in and play the first couple tracks of Forever Changes. But the rest of the band rebounded and got it together and played on the rest of it. What happened there? How did love go from being such a mighty live band to not ready to go on this third album well johnny johnny alluded to uh some conflict within the band um they wanted to write songs too and arthur of course you know i'm talking about eccles and 4z uh they wanted to be able to contribute songs and brian wanted to contribute more songs as well but you know again it was arthur's way or the highway so they went to the studio with a little bit of this resentment happening and they kind of what happened was the band kind of put their foot down and, and wouldn't cooperate, you know, almost like a, a small mutiny in a way. Uh, Johnny plays down the drug elements uh, going on, as uh, did Michael Stewart Ware when I interviewed him. Uh, of course, the story, as, as we're sort of talking about here, is um, as it's been put out for decades, is that they were too strung out on heroin to be able to even play the songs. But that's not the case because they had rehearsed the songs. At, at Arthur's house in the Hollywood Hills, and they knew the arrangements and they knew the songs. So the notion that they came in and were kind of drooling and falling all over the, the floor, junked out, isn't true. The other side of it, though, is as Bruce brought, as Bruce Botnick told me, who was who was co-producing with with Arthur that that album. Um, Arthur's thing was uh, about the money, and 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 he Bruce recalled Arthur going in the talk back because he's up in the booth, the band down in the studio part playing, and they're not they're they're really slow at tuning up and getting the song and the arrangement, whatever they're, they're doing their little mutiny thing, and Arthur goes in the talk back and says, "Come on, you guys, time's money," because Arthur knew by that point that you know Jack Holtzman had given the band X amount of dollars to make the album. And if you could do it for less than Arthur, <laughs> who dispensed the money to the others, could keep that money. And that attitude carried on throughout much of his career. But, you know, by years, years later, when uh, they're recording, and it's the, their, their album for uh, RSO Records, and Skip Taylor negotiated a $100,000 uh, advance to make the record, Arthur said to Skip, Let's um, let's just make a ten thousand dollar record and and pocket the ninety thousand, <laughs> that kind of thing. So a, a lot of dynamics uh, involved, and and you know Bruce Botnick 
you know, gave a lot of insight into what was happening during the recording of Forever Changes and why the Wrecking Crew was brought in. It was not intended to do the whole album with the Wrecking Crew, but it was Arthur's way of saying to the guys in the band, look, guys, if you can't get it together and play this stuff, I can hire studio musicians. We can, you know, they can crack out the songs in a couple of takes, you know, learn them and, and do them in a couple of takes and play them well, and we can move move on and get it done. So it was a move, according to Bruce uh, Botnick, it was a move to shake up the others in the band. And and it succeeded. It succeeded. Uh, the Wrecking Crew people, and I won't say guys, because Carol Kay was, came in on bass as well, um, they came in and, and did backing on a couple of tracks. The Daily Planet was one of them. And and more again was another one, and um, that that convinced everyone, including Bruce Botnick, who agreed with Arthur's plan to shake it all up. That let's go away, let's let's spend some time rehearsing, getting the songs, you know, so we know them better than we already do know them, and come back in the studio. And that plan worked because when they came back in the studio in uh, late August, early September of '67, they they cranked these songs out very quickly and they're complex songs and when you add in the horn and string arrangements to those uh to to those guitar and bass and drum uh, arrangements there's a lot going on in them because the string and horn arrangements weren't added until uh you know after the basic tracks were already uh laid down but they had to keep them in mind they had to, okay this is the horn part is going to be here so we play this part on the you know, on the guitar that sort of thing so it was not easy three chord music at whatsoever so it wasn't that these guys were 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 stoned out it's that the band needed to be shaken up and arthur succeeded in doing that and Arthur succeeded, I guess, in in saving some money probably in the end, because as I say, Jack Holtzman said, you know, whatever we don't use in the studio, you can keep that sort of thing. So yeah, go ahead. And it's remarkable just for an album featuring this kind of horn and string arrangements. And is it David Angel or David Angel? Uh, Angel, actually. Angel. Yeah, David Angel does this brilliant job and works very closely with Arthur and talks uh, a lot in, in the book about you know, their relationship and how they worked together and how impressed he had been with Arthur's musicianship. And they kind of contrasted that with Brian McLean, who had a great song in Ann Morgan, but didn't have the vision for the specifics of um, how to how to do the arrangements. And Angel had to step in and kind of do the whole George Martin bit, whereas with Arthur, it was more of a Paul McCartney, George Martin style uh, collaboration. And it's, yeah, just, we could do a whole show on, on the magnificence of forever changes and, and the impact it had, you know, nobody had really done anything like this up to this point. The Beatles and the Moody blues are doing stuff like this. I guess the Beatles are a few months ahead and the Moody blues are right on the same schedule, but this is absolutely at the cutting edge of rock music at the time. Um, but when it comes out, how is it received? Oh, it bombed. Um, you know, which is surprising because musicologists and music critics, if they have, you know, if they have any knowledge of music beyond, you know, 1990, uh, will routinely include Love's Forever Changes on their list of, you know, the 10 or 20, you know, greatest albums of all time. The album's a masterpiece. And and for a number of reasons, it was recorded in 1967, largely conceived and recorded during the whole much vaunted summer of love, you know, peace, love, flower power, you know, psychedelics, everything. Um, and yet it doesn't have any of that. It doesn't have any of the hallmarks of what we consider flower power with, you know, hippy dippy trippy 
high school yearbook dumb lyrics. It doesn't have backwards guitar. It doesn't have sitar in it, uh, tabla and, and Indian music influences. It doesn't have all the hallmarks of what we consider summer of love. Okay. But, you know, Arthur was really existing underneath the facade of flower power and all that and, and, and catching the, uh, the, the, the tenor of the underbelly of uh, all of that. And, and the biggest thing that, that permeated that year and that period of time wasn't, you know, Monterey Pop and love-ins and everything. It was the Vietnam War and and the fear of the draft, and especially for African-Americans who were drafted far more than, you know, white Americans. Um, and Arthur caught that, caught really that, that, that tension in the songs. And there's nothing that, that, there's there's no time stamp on that album that 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 says oh okay that's 67 you know because everybody was doing you know, sitars or trying to sound like a sitar or trying to sound like indian music um there's none of that there there's really good songwriting and really good playing that rises above the the stereotypes of summer of love psychedelic acid rock music at that time so that makes that makes forever changes a timeless piece of music but why did it bomb well a couple of reasons uh, i think it was it was beyond the i mean it, it to say that an artist is ahead of its time you know oh it's almost ahead of its time these artists are ahead of their time is really the kiss of death on a commercial level because if you're ahead of the head of your time no one's buying it now and all you can do is hope that later they'll catch on to it or catch up to you and that's kind of what hurt forever changes what hurt forever changes too was arthur wouldn't tour I mean, you put out this brilliant album, you should be out on the road, you should be doing the interviews at radio stations in in Phoenix, Arizona, and in Dayton, Ohio, and playing everywhere people can see you and get known and push the record. I mean, that's the way the business then worked. doesn't work that way now so much, but certainly back then. You put out a record, you go on the road. You release a single from the album, you go on the road. You know, that sort of thing. And Arthur, Arthur as I said earlier, wouldn't, wouldn't play that game. So the album album came out and and hit you know store record shelves with a thud and there was uh, there was no single pulled from it to get a lot of airplay and uh, no band to appear anywhere to be seen promoting it brilliant piece of music that fell on deaf ears and and it's um it's elevation to you know this this enormous status as a brilliant piece of art. It's not just a collection of songs like a Dave Clark Five record. It's a piece of art, including even the cover. Um, you know, it, its reputation has really been gained in retrospect because people who've come back to it or discovered it for the first time, like you said, you know, 1980s, you, you heard Forever Changes. And and you came to it with, with a new set of ears, and you may have come to it too with, with, with having heard about this album. You know, what's it all about? That sort of thing. I mean, I, I bought it in, in probably January of 68 by the time it got to Winnipeg, Canada. And listening to, um, you know, the, the opening track on the album, you know, Alone Again or, and hearing these bullfight almost kind of horns, mariachi horns coming in. Uh, it was like, what the heck is this? I, you know, I, I was listening to Cream and Jimi Hendrix and The Doors. And this sounded so different. That I wasn't, and 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 Arthur very much has his Johnny Mathis voice on throughout the album. I wasn't sure about it, and it took a little time, but 
you know, a few more listenings, I started to get it. And I started to see what was happening on this album. I started to understand how integral the horn and string arrangements are to those songs. And then learning that when Arthur was writing these songs, you know, uh, David Angel would come over and Arthur would hit notes on the piano. Even though Arthur was not a trained musician, he couldn't say, you know, I want a B flat here over to a C seventh. Uh, he could play notes because what he was hearing in his head. And, and David Angel could then write you know, write the the musical notation for it. So the horns aren't just added on, the strings aren't just added on, they're, in, they're, they're integral to the compo- the composition of the songs, you know, and, and they were right at, then added on in overdubs with that completely in mind. It, it was it was revolutionary. And, and I love Jack Holtzman's quote that I use in the book where he said, when we listen to the playback of the whole album, he said, Arthur was just sitting on a stool in the corner and he said he could tell, Holtzman could tell, that Arthur had had achieved something that he he could never achieve again. That he had reached this incredible musical and creative peak, and he would never get there again. And you know, true to form, he was right. Arthur never did achieve what uh, Forever Changes did. But because the album bombed, he resented that album, and he wouldn't play songs from it for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until after he came out of prison that he recognized that over the years, Forever Changes had taken on this mythical status as a brilliant album that he realized this is what people want to hear. And his his rejuvenation and his you know return to the stage uh, in a huge way in, in the 1990s uh, was because he began to play Forever Changes. And... Let's hear our last song, and this is a song from the album that followed Forever Changes, For Sale, and this is Singing Cowboy. Singing Cowboy, got a lasso in your hand, will you ever understand it's a do or die for? This life is up to you, so when you say goodbye, don't you cry, look out, kid, I'm catching up. And that was Singing Cowboy from For Sale, the first love album that Arthur Lee did with a whole new lineup of the band. And, you know, I had written off the whole post Forever Changes catalog, and I really made a mistake there. There's, If you love Arthur Lee, there's a lot of good stuff in those last uh, three albums that he did uh, for various major labels. And, and um, you know, one of, one of the songs I knew from, uh, I think, the second post Johnny Eccles lineup was famous because it's a big hip hop sample because it's got this totally inappropriate 10 minute drum solo at the end of a three minute song but that's the only you know song that had emerged but going back and listening to these to prepare for the show um you know there's definitely still some valuable work but tell us how did the band disintegrate and how did arthur lee continue on after and aftermath of forever changes and like you said holtzman was right and even when arthur's talking about forever changes he wrote it as kind of a last will and testament he was so obsessed with the vietnam war and the riots on the sunset strip that had ended you know you couldn't be what love was in 65 and 66 anymore in 67 68 because the police had shut it down to a great extent um but anyway, yeah, tell us about the, the aftermath. How did that band finally fall apart, and what did Arthur Lee do for an encore? Well, 
even though drugs didn't permeate the sessions for Forever Changers, they would after that. And Johnny Eccles and Ken Forsey would become heroin addicts, but that's after Forever Changers, even though the myth is that it was during Forever Changers. And that, that became problematic for the band. And Brian McLean quit the band, too. They did some sessions. That, you know, your, your Mind and We Belong Together uh, was one of the uh, recordings that they did you know, as it released as a single that went nowhere after Forever Changers. The band just kind of petered out. There was no money for any of them anymore. Ken Forsey was living in a friend's garage with his Jaguar, you know, and he owed, you know, he owed on the Jaguar and couldn't make the payments. Um, they just, they just, it just kind of petered out in, 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 in a whole bunch of different recriminations and money and all that, you know, Arthur, Arthur would still get some money because he wrote the songs. And back in those days, the songwriters got paid first above and beyond any, any royalties from sales. So Arthur was doing okay. And he didn't, didn't care about the other guys in the band. He and he decided he was going to pursue us a, a, a different version. And we get we get different love lineups coming over the next uh, couple of years before Arthur then uh, launches his own solo career. But you are right, and I actually kind of took that attitude initially too. Be, being a love fan from buying that first album in '66 and buying everything, um, I kind of wrote off some of the later, uh, you know, for sale and out there uh, albums. The uh, you know, like like out there was a a double album because Arthur was getting you know paid for every song that he recorded. So they, why not do a double album and make more money? But uh, like for sale, I think for sale is is a great album. It really is, and it, that that lineup could have gone on if if not for a lot of you know problems and issues that uh, that involved it. But again, Arthur was his own worst enemy. And Arthur was very insular, and Arthur wanted to sleep in his own bed every night and didn't want to tour. And all these things really conspired to torpedo his career. And Arthur's personal problems ultimately led to him, you know, being incarcerated for, you know, five and a half or six years. And, uh, but there's, 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 there's a, a beautiful final chapter to Arthur's story. And that's, of course, you know, his release from prison and his, his recognition that, yeah, maybe, maybe I did do something pretty spectacular, pretty amazing with Forever Changes. People want to hear it. Let's go out and play it for them. Uh, that we have this, you know, this, this career back on stage again. Arthur celebrated, loved everywhere. So it's nice that he went out on that and didn't just didn't after prison just kind of fade away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you, you, you detail a lot of his personal troubles. I mean, the book tells Arthur Lee's whole life story, and he's one of these people who did most of the coolest stuff in his life very early, and the rest of his life was pretty hard. But And, and the, the incarceration in particular was a raw deal, where he, what, shot a gun off of a balcony at, in the mm-hmm. evening, and then because of third strikes laws and racist prosecution, he drew a pretty heavy sentence and did some serious prison time, but it did have the effect of kind of saving his life. He he was able to clean up and turn around. And when he comes out, he got to have sort of a valedictory tour. He got to do the entire album of Forever Changes um, in England, where it had always been more popular than it was in the States and where he was really revered. And so tell us about that victory lap that Arthur Lee got to experience before his passing. Well, I think it was validation that he had done something pretty spectacular in his life. There he was sitting in prison for however many years. And 
he didn't do anything musical. He didn't have a guitar. He didn't write songs. Anything. He didn't even want to be, you know, thought of as oh, there's the rock, you know, there's the rock star guy, that sort of thing. He was just a guy in prison, and to come out of that and all of a sudden have uh, people wanting to see you, wanting to hear you, wanting to hear you play the songs you never played and play the album you never played. Um, what an incredible career trajectory to go up like that after being, I mean, the lowest of lows, serious drug addict, screws around with a gun, fires it off, three strikes, goes to prison. Yes, a very you know, racist uh, legal system. And to come out of that and, and you know, within a year tr be triumphant again and being hailed far and wide uh, as the genius that you were, I wouldn't say are by that time, but he certainly was at that peak in 66, 67, 68. Arthur, Arthur was a musical genius. How, how gratifying for him to have that. And he connected with uh, a band of musicians called Baby Lemonade who, who were very sympathetic to Arthur's music. And you know, when he got together with them, they had learned every song. They had learned the whole album, the licks, the nuances, the chord, the arrangements, everything, because they had a reverence for Arthur and had a reverence for the song. And um, wherever they went, wherever they played, people were just wowed by it to be able to hear those songs played live. So even though he kind of things kind of started to fall apart, you know, shortly before he, he died, because he was sick for a long time before it was ever made public. Um, he had that. He went out. I guess you know. I want to say with a bang. I guess you could probably say that. But he kind of went. He kind of went out. He went out a hero, rather than just to be forgotten. And wonderful. I mean, I, I sort of viewed the story as as a story of redemption. And there are not a lot of those in in, in rock and roll. But Arthur's is a story of redemption. And who would have thought? That you know, in 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 the mid seventies, this this guy who was you know doing coke heavily, even shooting it. Um, is gonna and go to prison is gonna emerge triumphant. So that that's that's a wonderful story to tell, and and to be able for me to do it was was a, a wonderful experience. And and I'm 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 you know I'm very grateful that I got the chance to tell it. Yeah, and it's a great story. And you know, Baby Lemon, Lemonade goes on to be involved with Brian Wilson and his recreation of Smile, and and uh, um, you know the the Pet Sounds concerts. And so Arthur Lee once again blazing a path that his fellow rock stars could do, go down. And uh, yeah, um, this has just been a great show about one of my favorite rock stars growing up. Uh, my guest has been John Anderson. I'm sorry, I mispronounced your name the first time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is uh, Forever Changes, Arthur Lee and the Book of Love. And I, I hope we can have you back. I'd love to talk with about with you about Gene Clark or the Buffalo Springfield or any of the oh, other that'd books. That would be great. That would be great. Anytime. Please do. Huh? Thank you, John. Thanks, Nate. Take care. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. On Monday, Nate welcomes Joe Janicek to discuss the Plastic People of the Universe, the band that helped bring down communism in Czechoslovakia. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 